0: Hi guys, it's Carolina Hidalgo from Last Podcast Network. I co-host a weekly podcast called Movie Sign with the Mads with Frank Conniff and Trace Bellew, the original mad scientist from the hit cult TV show Mystery Science Theater 3000. That's right, TV's Frank and Dr. Clayton Forrester, along with myself, spend each week discussing and thoroughly dissecting a movie we've recently seen.
1: The premise of our show is very complicated. I hope you can pay attention. We come in once a week and talk about a movie. Okay, I hope you could keep up with that.
0: Past episodes included classics like Taxi Driver, The Godfather, and Sunset Boulevard, to our live show recordings of The Shining, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, to newer releases like The Shape of Water, Hereditary, Get Out, and Mendy.
2: Some we like, some we don't. We agree, we disagree.
1: But in the end, it's all about movies and you, the viewer, and your suggestions. The viewer, no, it doesn't come through that way. It's on the radio. It's on a podcast. A podcast, and it's free.
0: There's no real continuity between the episodes, so click on the movie episode you'd like to hear about. Check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you can find podcasts, or just look for us on lastpodcastnetwork.com under shows. Thanks, everyone, and enjoy the show. Let the word go forth Fool me once Are you fired up? If I'm not
1: a crook Are you ready to go? Shame on shame on you It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat Hosted by Ben Kissel
0: Fool me, can't get fooled again
1: Hello everyone, it's Benjamin Kissel Full name, Benjamin Grant Kissel Yes, Benjamin Grant Kissel BGK Isn't that kind of fun? Thank you all so much for joining me today. I also have Travis Morningstar
2: staring at my big face. Travis Michael Morningstar. Morningstar is my real last name. I know it, it was buddy. An, it was an Ellis Island thing. I'm not trying to like apply for a Hot Topic job.
1: Well, you'd get it in my book, my friend. You belong at Hot Topic, and that's Thank a compliment. You. Thank you. No problem. We got a bunch of stuff to get to a little bit later on in this episode, folks. I am very excited to announce I'm going to be talking with he is a Democratic candidate for president. His name is Andrew Yang. And this man, really fascinating. He will be in the debates in June and July. The DNC has already uh, confirmed that. So he will be in the debates. And what they're doing this year with the DNC they are doing two different debate nights, so they're going to try to avoid what happened with the Republicans. Of course, we know the varsity squad, and then they had the JV squad, <laughs> so they had the B team and the A team. Uh, Lindsey Graham was over there on the B squad. Carly Fiorina actually was the only one to my memory that was able to jump up to the big leagues after eight Strong uh, B-team debate or junior varsity debate against, I think it was Huckabee might have been there. Um, uh, Who else was there? I don't think Herman Cain was involved. Maybe he was. I don't know. That was many, many moons ago. Nonetheless, what the DNC is doing this time around, um, as opposed to what they did last time around, which was make it almost impossible for anyone to get into the debates, hence what we saw. Um, They are doing... Two nights, double debate nights, and uh, they are going to be choosing at random the people who will be participating in each debate. So it's going to be two full stages, two stages full of candidates, uh, all on equal footing. No JV Team B squad whatsoever. So I think that's a – It's a melee. That's good. Well, yeah, sure, melee, whatever. Um, But Andrew Yang will be in those debates, and he is the only Democratic candidate calling for a universal basic income, or what he calls the freedom dividend. And I know a lot of you might be saying, how the hell are we going to pay for that? But he actually has a really strong, intelligent plan, and uh, he focuses on automation. He's talking about a lot of things other Democratic candidates aren't talking about So worst case scenario, some of his ideas get picked up and rolled into the Democratic platform, and I think that would be absolutely wonderful. So I'm excited to speak with him a little bit later on in the show. Obviously, we have to talk about what happened in front of a congressional hearing. Of course, it was led by Elijah Cummings. This is regarding Michael Cohen, the former fixer, the former lawyer of Donald Trump, worked for the dude for 10 years. Things didn't work out as planned, and now he's looking at a three-year uh, stint in the penitentiary, in the old pokey, and he wants to kind of you know, clear his mind a little clear bit. Clear his conscience. Clear his conscience a little bit. This is kind of, you know, he's got Lanny Davis's lawyer out there. This is sort of the, yes, I made a mistake, but so did all these other people tour. And it was a really compelling testimony. So we're going to talk about that uh, coming up here in a brief second. And we're also going to discuss what happened in Hanoi, Vietnam. You know, I'm just happy that Donald Trump finally got to Vietnam. <laughs> Do you remember? Bone spurs didn't stop yeah. him from this trip. However, this trip was about... As ineffective as the actual war in Vietnam, it sort of ended in a stalemate, so we'll talk a little bit about what happened regarding Donald Trump meeting with Kim Jong Un for the second time. Yeah. And the big real the big news was Kim Jong Un spoke with reporters. Can yeah. you believe it? But just real quickly, I do want to talk real small stories here, but just a couple of democratic candidates, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren made a made a little news this week uh, of things that kind of went under the radar because there were a lot Bigger stories to cover in, in pretty much every sense of the word, but Elizabeth Warren, she has said she's not going to do or hold private fundraisers, and she's not going to do one-on-one meetings with big donors. I like this. She's putting her money where her mouth is and going kind of the Bernie Sanders route, wouldn't you say, Travis? Sure. Yeah, going with the small donors, and you know what it reminds me of? The Green Bay Packers. Why? Because they're owned by the fans, not by huge corporate overlords. Is that so? Every fan uh, is, well, whoever is a shareholder in the Green Bay Packers, they don't have, like, a owner. The owners are the fans. So it, w- it will never be leaving the beautiful state of Wisconsin. The Green Bay Packers will always be there. And thank God, because if Wisconsin loses the Packers, oh my, all we have is really exceptional Bloody Marys. With beer backers, yeah, that's but then that's it, you know. And then you don't you don't have any game to watch on Sunday. Then you're just drinking alone at a bar on a Sunday without watching football. That's alcoholism. So Elizabeth Warren has says, "I ain't gonna talk to these private funders. Uh, I'm not gonna do any private fundraisers. I ain't gonna talk to these big donors one on one." And this is a quote from her. She says that means no fancy receptions or big money fundraisers. Only with people who can write big checks. She goes on to say, which I think is great, again, that's how politics work. The big donors, they get all the favors, and for all intents and purposes, they literally write the policy. They literally write policy, and then members of Congress just sign the bill. Yeah. Sometimes they don't even know what the hell is in the dang thing. So. She says, no fancy receptions or big money fundraisers, only with people who can write big checks. She says, it means that wealthy donors won't be able to purchase better seats or one-on-one time with me at our events. And it means I won't be doing, quote, call time, which is when candidates take hours to call wealthy donors to ask for their support. And that is really half of the job when I talked with Chaffetz over at uh, he was a politician he's a Republican Jason Chaffetz but he was telling me I was like well, you know and he kind of resigned uh, prematurely uh, from Congress I was like why did you do it a lot of people were like must, must be a scandal I don't know any of this stuff um, he just said he did it for family and he said he did it because he cannot solicit money mm-hmm. he's like I'm horrible at calling people I hate being on the phone I cannot ask for money and some politicians are great at it. If you remember the documentary Wiener, of course, Anthony Wiener is now out of jail. Uh, he's back on the streets. Weiner Wiener popped out. Weiner Wiener pops out. That was, the, that was the New York Post headline because the New York Post is brilliant. But if you watch the documentary Wiener, you see him in full, like, let's get money mode. He's so good at it. So good at it. He's calling the biggest donors possible. Evidently, Huma had all of those connections. He cheated on her a bunch. Or cyber cheated I guess um, a bunch and he was still like can I have all of your connections for the wealthiest donors and you hear him on the phone talking to these people and it makes your skin crawl yeah. because you have to be so fake I mean they're they're more, more phony than someone working at a sex hotline they're just it's disgusting so she says I'm not doing it no call time with these wealthy people and hopefully that can um, not uh, that can leave her campaign uh, I want to say with less taint, but then that also sounds horrible <laughs> to say with a campaign with less taint sounds horrible. But, you know, it can leave her campaign uh, slightly less influenced by these large donors. Yeah. If
2: you have an, if you have a platform that's populist enough, you shouldn't have to call uh, some CEO or not whatever. Not, especially because and nowadays, Bernie Sanders is is a good example of that. He just sort of has a big enough platform and a a populist enough platform, and he is doing it.
1: And nowadays, with the way the internet works and technology, it's so much easier. You just go to one of their websites. The first thing they ask is to donate, which is always a little bit annoying, especially now if you look at everyone's websites. They don't have their policies up yet. They're just like, give us cash. And I'm like, who are you? Why would I want to give you cash? But I I assure you that you can find the donate button. It's pretty large. All right, so that's just a little bit of information coming out about Elizabeth Warren and her campaign. She's uh, she's out there hitting the streets and um, seems to be resonating with a lot of people. Kamala Harris, of course, she's been on my uh, she's a been been on my hypocrite list. A hypocrite <laughs> list, of course, given her time as a prosecutor in Oakland, I thought she was a little bit too hawkish when it comes to. Um, You know, she's just incarcerating parents because their children are truant at school. And, of course, that's going to make the entire problem, uh, you know, go away or it could make it a lot worse. But she has now come out and said, and perhaps this is her again, just kind of grabbing at straws, just trying to seem like she is a little bit more progressive than her record shows. Records are important, but, uh, you know, I suppose we have to try and take these words Um, seriously, but of course, let's take them with a grain of salt. But Senator Kamala Harris, she has told supporters that she will decriminalize sex work nationwide. And I think this is a good thing. Uh, She goes on to say, she says, we can't criminalize consensual behavior as long as no one is being harmed. So this is one of those great sort of Moments where libertarian tenets and the Democratic Party and liberals can get together and agree decriminalizing sex work is the way to go. This was uh, during an interview with The Root. Harris was asked about sex work and she says it ought to be decriminalized. Though the interviewer did not specify at which level. Um, I do, Harris responded. I think that we have to understand, though, that it is not as simple as that. There's an ecosystem around that that involves crimes that harm people. And for those issues, I do not believe that anybody who hurts another human being or profits off of their exploitation should be free of criminal prosecution. She added, but when you're talking about consenting adults, yes, we should really consider that we can't criminalize consensual behavior as long as no one is being harmed. Of course, this is interesting because she supported the SESTA Act, which is the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. And of course, anyone with a brain would be like how is that a bad thing? Well, what ended up happening was uh, there's a thing called back pages, or uh, and there's a lot of places where sex workers go to communicate, sort of message boards. Yeah, and they'll say don't get with this guy, he's a total creep. This person is safe. They criminalized all of that. They done. They did away with a full platform of communication for people who are. Engaging in illegal activities, so it has to be a little bit under the radar, but now they've pushed it so far underground, once again, it's possible more people end up getting hurt. So this is also a case, and I like her description, I understand when it comes to human sex trafficking, as we saw with the Orchids of Asia, I believe that was the name of the Robert Kraft salon or spa that he was going to. The sex workers that were there weren't sex workers, they were sex slaves. These were people who were brought over from uh, from China under the false pretense of getting jobs. And then next thing you know, they're forced to touch Robert Kraft yeah. against, you know, which is... Who looks <laughs> like Emperor
2: Palpatine.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a total friggin' nightmare. Um, so that's totally different than what we're talking about here when it comes to consensual sex work. Yeah, these that places, is sex slavery, and that is human trafficking. So, so she's right about the ecosystem that can go around, but I would argue the ecosystem is allowed to thrive because yeah, it's criminalized. It helps.
2: This is the the kind of site that helps facilitate this kind of work, and otherwise right. it'll seep into the gutter. And, uh, and you know, it's like that rape my professor website. Oh yeah, like, rape my professor. Sometimes you need to know if your teacher is going to be hot or not. And that, oh, that kind of, of Oh, website, is that what that was about? Yeah, with the number of like hot hot peppers next to the the teacher's name. I, I never I, saw. I it. always looked up to see if my college professor was going to be hot or not. And, really? And uh, and in a way it was it was sort of a back page for me.
1: Interesting. I thought that was more like do they
2: teach you good? No, it was mostly to see if you if it was a hot professor.
1: Okay. So that was one of the things that she supported Sesta, which advocates um, shutting down platforms like Backpage. According to Harris, she also told The Root, I was advocating 15 years ago that we have to stop arresting these prostitutes and start going after the Johns and the pimps because we were criminalizing the women, which is absolutely True, she goes on to say Backpage was providing advertisements for the sale of children of minors. She added, responding to the criticism of the shuttering of backpage.com, and so I called for them to be shut down, and I have no regrets about that. So that is why I say take it with a grain of salt because I'm not sure if she does fully understand um, what that does. Of course, she's a prosecutor, she understands these issues, but. I'm not sure if she understands the issues from the work-in-person perspective necessarily. From the criminal justice perspective, obviously she gets it, but what does it look like on a day-to-day basis for people who are in the industry? Uh, I, I think she might be missing a little bit Robocop, of standing understanding on that.
2: RoboCop only knew justice. He didn't really- he, he did. He was too much of a robot to experience human emotions until the very end of the movie, but kamala harris is a robocop
1: she is in her own right so those are just a couple of smaller stories that went under the radar this week that i thought were uh, relatively interesting all right so let's go on and talk a little bit about what happened when it comes to michael cohen talking in front of this panel here so some of the interesting things obviously the great race debate Um, which was absolutely hilarious, (laughs) which we'll talk about briefly. But there were some interesting things regarding Michael Cohen. And, of course, um, the left, this is another one of those things where the left is like this guy is telling the truth, nothing but the truth, 100% truth, and the right is like there's nothing he says that's accurate, all this kind of stuff. Obviously, Michael Cohen, his back is against the wall. Um, he's speaking with the Southern District of New York on a regular basis. It seems like it's almost daily. He said continually, and of course, that's the real story in many ways. What's happening with the Southern District of New York because that's going to impact the Trump Foundation, which is a total scam. Which is of course ironic because I mean the Clinton Foundation is another scam, but Trump's big thing was the, how the the Clintons are these scam artists, yeah. all this stuff, and the 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 Trump Foundation. Is absolutely horrible. We're going to tell a funny little tale about that that Michael Cohen uh, brought up during testimony here in a second. And Trump business. What's going on with the Trump business? Southern District of New York, they're sniffing around. And if they want to find something, even if you aren't purposely doing anything illegal, in Donald Trump's case, I don't think it would be not on purpose, but honestly... If federal prosecutors or if prosecutors want to find something, yes. they will find something. Yes. Um, everyone has made mistakes on their taxes, I'm sure of it. So, and Donald Trump has done a lot of these things on purpose. So I'm sure they're digging up some interesting things. But this was an interesting point that I thought Michael Cohen made. He says everybody's job at the Trump organization was to protect Mr. Trump. He said every day most of us knew we were coming in and we were going to lie for him on something. And that has become the norm. That's exactly what's happening right now in this country. It's exactly what's happening right here in government. And I thought that was fascinating because you see a lot of these Republicans right now, specifically Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows is another one, a lot of the Freedom Caucus. Mark Meadows, of course, the head of the Freedom Caucus. Bending over backwards, you know, just being Neo from the Matrix, just (laughs) attempting to dodge all of these bullets and pretending that they're not real. When push comes to shove, they're all going to be Michael Cohen's in their own right. And that's what he was saying. He's like, I did it for 10 years. I lied to protect this dude. I did everything that he asked me to do. And this is where it got me. Three years in the penitentiary. So I thought that that was a really powerful moment. And I thought that was something that I'm not the, the, I didn't really watch too much of the news coverage because I, I don't know what they're talking about half the time because um, it's madness. But I thought that was really a powerful thing because you can see the you can see the Republican Party going down that road and they have for a long time. Even Lindsey Graham now, you know, Lindsey Graham is just so in bed with Donald Trump. It is disturbing, specifically given the fact that Lindsey Graham was best friends with John McCain and we know it. And Donald Trump continues to mock the legacy of John McCain, a man who actually went to Vietnam, stayed there when he didn't want when he wanted to leave. Of course, Donald Trump wanted to leave and he just got right out of there. So I think it's going to be fascinating. Once this once this era is done, it'll be interesting to see. And I'm not going to forget. I can forgive, but I will never forget the Republican politicians who are going to bat? But that's for the thing; guy, like they can, you know?
2: they can just scatter. Like with Michael Cohen, it's one person. The GOP, it's just a bunch. I mean, it's going on your, your, I was going, going on to, your, going on your matrix analogy. They're all Mr. Smith, like the clones of Mr. Smith. They and are. It doesn't matter if they, if they like go to bat for Trump because they can just sort of hide amongst the masses of, of white dude faces. Well, that, that be, did do that.
1: Mark my words. They'll be some pr- they will be some. They will have they will have primary competition they will have competition in their primaries once the death settles and i thought elijah cummings did a great job in this hearing of just trying to remind people that what we're in right now is abnormal yeah and he's like we got to get back to normalcy he's even talking about mark meadows there was during the great race (laughs) debate with the uh woman out of michigan congresswoman out of michigan talib um talking we'll talk about that in a second but elijah cummings uh really did the best that he could to be like, this isn't normal. We need to get back to a place where we can agree to disagree and have understand that we have more in common than we don't. Um and so I think he did a good job, but I'm sure that a lot of these politicians are going to never say the name Donald Trump out loud again when all of this is said and done.
2: But this is like so it's and Cummings knew from the beginning he was like trying to get ahead of the the fact that all the Republicans are going to call Cohen a liar, but yes. this is so clearly like cleaved on po- a partisan lines. Well, like, they, they, the Republicans are not going to budge from the Cohen is a snake liar. But of rat. course,
1: you know the irony is that the reason that he is a liar, individual one, who is, is that? Donald Trump. Oh, okay. so the whole thing is still predicated on Donald Trump, and you know, you know they they were pretty. They were pretty pathetic. I, I mean, I understand this guy isn't a perfect witness. The dude's looking at three years in the penitentiary. I, like, if you're, if you're a prosecutor or a defense team, you're not like this is the pri- this is the yeah. perfect witness. No one cannot trust this guy who already lied to the same <laughs> committee before. But it is what it is. So Cohen, he also provided the committee with documentation to support his claim that Trump broke the law, and of course, this is regarding the Stormy Daniel payments of a dollars thousand dollars. These were hush payments that happened during the campaign. Uh could be construed as a campaign finance violation. The argument against that is pretty hilarious. The argument against that is that he does this so much and it just so happened to uh they overlapped it just overlapped yeah. with the presidential campaign. But when Donald Trump was in office, Michael Cohen presented a check of for thirty five thousand dollars and this was from August first 2017 Trump's signature on the check strongly suggest he was aware of the payoff and the payback in addition to the campaign finance violation. Trump may have broken the law by not listing the money exchange in sworn financial disclosure forms in 2017 and of course they showed the check in the courtroom they got the little tv in there the republicans also showed a small picture of michael cohen with the words liar liar pants on fire underneath it i mean really remarkably juvenile stuff but that's (laughs) the world we live in the check you can't argue with it 35k obviously signed Uh, by Donald Trump. So I thought that was really interesting, actual evidence that Donald Trump knew of the payment. And of course, I've been saying this forever. Either Donald Trump is the worst businessman in the history of the world and doesn't know where $130,000 was going to his lawyer, lawyer, or he was in on it. So of course he was in on it. If you know anything, my understanding of how the Trump world works, it ends with Trump. Yeah, He was real hands-on. He wasn't a dude who was like, well, we better not. We better not run this by Donald. It's like you run by everything by Donald Trump. So the whole idea that there would be 130k uh, going to his lawyer, unbeknownst to Donald Trump, to pay off this woman, Stormy Daniels, is and was, and continues to be, totally and utterly ludicrous. So, in addition to that, uh, Cohen provided the committee with financial statements. He said Trump gave to Deutsche Bank. Now, this is what Donald Donald Trump. He's just, you know, there's a great documentary, The Trump Dynasty. Uh, I think it's on A&E, talking about how Donald Trump's businesses they all failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Taj Mahal. How did the how did Donald Trump get out of the failing Taj Mahal? He went public. So basically, what he did was he's like, this is totally failing. He kept up the lie in public and was like, everything is great. It's grand. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And he knew they were hemorrhaging money. The great. The, there mm-hmm. was another recession that hit. No one was going to AC to gamble because no one had any freaking money. So he's like, let's go public. So he took the company public. Now everyone else is invested. So it's the stock started at $35 a share, went all the way down to $0.17. Cents. Donald Trump now is out, and he was able – so basically the everyday people got stuck Hearing his debt of the Taj Mahal, Donald Trump gets out. Every business venture he had that failed, he still managed to make money because he would just do these kinds of things. And some of the things that he would do was he would inflate his own net worth in an illegal effort to make it easily to obtain bank loans. So he's like, I got all this money. I got 10 billion bucks. Give me a loan, give me a loan. And then the inverse of that, he would deflate the value of his assets to reduce his taxes. So he's telling the banks, I got all the money, I got I got the money from I, I got the money of the gods. I got everything I possibly need. Gold toilets. I drink Evian. That's how fancy mm-hmm. he is. He's drinking Evian. Mm-hmm. So he tells them all of that. Meanwhile, he's telling the government, I got nothing. I'm just a poor boy eating soup all day. And the soup has rocks in it. And it turns out, obviously, neither of those are true. So that's just the kind of mind that we're talking about when we talk about Donald Trump. Nothing is on the level. Nothing is like nothing is true. No, it is all based on a complete and utter lie. His entire existence is a farce. And it's so sad that that farce is now the most powerful man in this country and possibly in, well, yeah, without a doubt, in the world. So um, so Michael Cohen continued to talk about wh- what does it look like when Donald Trump tells you to lie? He says he doesn't tell you to lie. He makes strong suggestions of things that he likes. Now, of course, Michael Cohen could always say, he, Michael used the analogy, he's like, if I just say, if Donald Trump, for example, says you're wearing a beautiful tie, that's the best tie I've ever seen. And then you, and then he asked me, what do you think about that tie? I'm going to say, well, it's a beautiful tie. It's the best tie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And that's just sort of how it all cult-like, way cult-like, where obviously Michael Cohen, you're watching this from an outsider, you're like, you have free will. You could be like, no, I've seen a better tie. <laughs> but then you got to think about this is your boss, and this is someone you want to impress. You are the man who said you would take a bullet for Donald Trump.
2: Yeah, you like the tie. It's it's coded language like a mob boss would use. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so Cohen said the president
1: and his associates have lied repeatedly about how long the discussions, not just lying about financial stuff. This is where some of the lie, or somebody's tie, this is where the lies become significant to what we're dealing with now. And this is regarding the Trump Tower that was supposed to be built in Moscow. So... Donald Trump, now we're wondering why the hell is he so up Putin's you-know-what? So Cohen said the president and his associates have lied repeatedly about how long discussions about a scuttled Trump Tower development in Moscow went on and who exactly was involved in the negotiations. According to Michael Cohen, the president checked in several times during the 2016 campaign uh, and would ask, how is it going in Russia, and as late as June of 2016, uh, this is well into you know the the election. Of course, he announced in 2015 mm-hmm. uh, in July, I believe. So this is well into the presidential campaign. He was asking what's going on with Russia. Now Donald Trump said that he completed all of those discussions by January of 2016. Another one of these classic Trump manipulations and lies. And I firmly believe that Donald Trump was probably still talking about Trump Tower in Moscow. At this point, we're talking June 2016. We're in the middle of, you know, we got some fun debates happening. Everything is kind of going crazy. I don't think that Donald Trump thinks he's going to be president. Maybe he really does want it. Who the hell knows? But nonetheless, June of 2016, still being concerned about Trump Tower, that does make everybody feel unnerved because we just don't want our president to have foreign interests. Uh, we want our president to be backing us 100% in everything that he does. Yeah. Uh, because that is the one role of what a president's supposed to do. A big role, anyway. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees. So you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike view easy to understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone you can also view stock collections such as 100 most popular with Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio discover new stocks track your favorite companies and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest Robinhood is giving listeners of Abe Blinken's Top Hat a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at tophat.robinhood.com. Cohen also testified about Trump, about Donald Trump's longtime confidant, of course, the one and only roger stone mm-hmm. who we haven't heard from he's been good he's been quiet this week i think he learned his lesson a maybe little bit. he did of course roger stone getting in trouble with the judge after he posted a picture of her with crosshairs next to her head and you know just kind of roasted her mm-hmm. uh, not a good idea we I, talked about that last week i
2: think he probably popped a ball gag in his mouth and and it's just trying Shh. to chill out in the Shh. meantime Yeah, honestly he might have popped
1: a ball gag into his mouth and that's fine that's fine. That's a sign of Roger and Stone I like. And that's safe,
2: and that's consensual. That's great. And, and his nice, and healthy.
1: He and his wife, I don't know, well, sure, why not? I, you know what, why not? It's healthy, that's what I say. Cohen also testified, again, that the longtime confidant Roger Stone was in contact with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange during the 2016 campaign. Cohen said he specifically overheard a July 2016 phone call in which Stone told Trump that he had just gotten off the phone with assange so literally roger stone is talking to trump be like just got off the phone with assange and that's where he told him that this massive email dump was about to come out against uh, hillary clinton or the dnc and donald trump said that's great that's great that's <laughs> said, wouldn't that's how i know that be great that's
2: how i know it's a real because it, it just sounds so trump like wouldn't that be great wouldn't that be great if that was able to happen amazing and of course
1: a few days later WikiLeaks released thousands of emails uh, that were stolen from the DNC. And one of the areas, which is hilarious to me, some people are trying to argue that even if Roger Stone told Donald Trump that WikiLeaks was going to make this dump, they're like, well, he didn't even get the information right because Donald Trump was told that they were going to dump Hillary's emails and they dumped the DNC. Mm-hmm. So, but of course, we know. DNC, the DNC and Hillary were quite close together, as of course the Clintons bailed them out, uh, which is probably why we didn't have the fairest Democratic election in 2016. Um, and yet another stunning twist, Cohen testified Trump likely knew of the infamous June twenty-sixth Trump Tower meeting with his son Donald Jr. as well. So these are kind of the biggest issues with when it comes to Moscow. Now, they're also as always, some of the flimsier things that Michael Cohen talked about, because they're a little bit left to your imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story about Donald Trump hearing about the Trump Moscow or about the Trump Tower meeting uh, with the Russians. Evidently, Cohen's in a meeting with Donald Trump. Donnie Jr. walks in. Maybe he's in a Snickers bar. Maybe he's having a couple of Twix. I have no idea what the kid eats. And he goes behind the desk. And uh, Michael Cohen is like, "That was very strange because no one goes behind Donald Trump's desk." I mean, you can imagine the guy's probably not wearing pants or something. And he he's whisk- uh, eating
2: a hot dog like a hamburger. Of course, yeah. well, he's
1: crazy. I mean, you know, no denying that. Um, and he tells Donald Trump in his ear, "This is Michael. This is Donald Trump Jr. talking to Donald Trump." As Michael Cohen sits a cross the desk. So Donald Trump Jr. leans over and says, the meeting is all set. And then Donald Trump says, okay, good. Let me know. So there is speculation by Cohen that that was in reference to the forementioned Trump Tower meeting. So those were a couple of the big things that we learned um, coming from Michael Cohen. And, of course, we also, as I mentioned before, had some funnier stuff just to show you what kind of personality uh, Donald Trump is. So one of the things we talked about as well was this whole freaking um, auction thing. This is like totally ludicrous. Okay, so Donald Trump, he's got a portrait of himself, and it's called the Donald, cleverly called the Donald. So it's up for auction in East Hampton, according to Michael Cohen. This pharmaceutical dude, Stuart Rar, plunked down the money. For the art for artist William Quigley's painting of his friend and landlord at the time, Donald Trump. Trump later paid back RAR using Trump Foundation money. Again, is that we've talked about this on the past before. But that doesn't seem to be a Trump Foundation. Like, what greater good than buying a painting of yourself that you put <laughs> up for auction using the Trump Foundation money? So, sources say the painting sold for 60000 at the time. Cohen confirmed that that number during his testimony. Three days following the event, Trump tweeted, Just found out that at his charity auction of celebrity portraits in East Hampton, my portrait by artist William Quigley topped list at sixty k. He bought it himself so he could have the most most expensive portrait purchased at this auction. That just shows you the psychopathy, the sociopathy, and the manipulation and length that Donald Trump is willing to go to to make himself seem bigger than he is. He must be insecure. I don't know what the hell is going on. Well, this
2: is just like in 2017, he posed as his own publicist. Yes, of course. To tell a story about how Carla Bruni, the model, dumped Mick Jagger to go out with Trump.
1: I know. At least he was working. You know, at (laughs) at least he did it. You know, I know a lot of comedians who fake to be their own publicist as well, but well, just p- trying to get road games. That's part games. of the job. That's part of comedian. the job. But of course, I mean, that's just who he is. So anyway, a couple of interesting things coming from uh, the Cohen testimony. Uh, you know, the, the the you can't deny the check. You can't deny the paper trail. So the next big guy they have to get... Uh, in this committee, by the way, Elijah Cummings—they are doing more than just uh, you know going after Donald Trump. And Elijah Cummings made that a point. They had an opioid uh, conversation. They had an opioid hearing. Uh, people are obviously—that's a major epidemic. They met with pharmaceutical industries. I watched that on C-SPAN. That was really compelling. A little bit boring, but super interesting. And they also had a conversation about voting rights. They had a whole hearing on voting rights in this same committee. So this is not the first. Thing that this committee is doing. But what this committee needs to do is follow up On Alan Wesselberg. This is the dude who knows Donald Trump's financial secrets and has agreed to become a cooperating witness. Now, Alan Wesselberg, he has been with the Trump family for around 40 years. He worked with his pops first and then obviously Donald Trump. And he knows all of the finances. He's seen all of the taxes. He knows the manipulation. He knows the tactics that they've used, the inflating, the deflating of numbers, whatever it might be. They need to call him. They need to call him, get him under oath, and just hear what he has to say because it seems to me he is the one who knows where the proverbial bodies are being placed or buried. And um, I think he would be fascinating. Well, he has been
2: granted immunity, so that probably will happen. I think it's going to happen. And speaking of where the bodies
1: are buried, what is the one name of the goon? Because Michael Cohen also said you got a bunch of goons.
2: Matthew Calamari. Matthew
1: Calamari. That's one of Trump's goons. And he might literally know where bodies are buried. Uh, I don't know. Honestly, who the hell knows? Donald Trump was in the construction business for a long time. You deal with a lot of mobsters and a lot of union heads. A lot of corruption. So there might be be a body under the Taj Mahal. I have no idea. Um, but nonetheless, Calamari, Michael Calamari and, uh, and Alan Weisselberg, more Alan Weisselberg, of course, Calamari is a, as his name would suggest kind of a meathead. Um, okay. So that would be fascinating to, to, to hear from Alan Weisselberg and hopefully we can. All right. Just lastly regarding this hearing, We talked about the blow-up regarding Representative Mark Meadows and um, what happened here. So Donald Trump, he was called uh, racist, he was called a con man, called a liar uh, by Michael Cohen. And in order to say that Donald Trump isn't racist, Mark Meadows uh, went to the cameras and behind him was a gal named... Lynn Patton. Now, she is the HUD regional administrator. Her name is Lynn Patton. Uh, During the congressional testimony from former Trump fixer Michael Cohen, Patton, a black woman, appeared at the invitation of the Republican congressman to refute Cohen's claims that Trump is a racist. So Mark Cohen is talking to the cameras, really just a bizarre, (laughs) bizarre photo op. Um, And he's talking about how Donald Trump isn't racist because, look, he hired this black chick, Lynn Patton, and uh, she didn't even speak. She didn't talk it was so literally was, a prop well now that's that's the line we're gonna go to here so that's what happened so this is according to uh, meadows he, he said quote you made some very demeaning comments about the president that miss Patton doesn't agree with he says in fact of course referring to his racism she said he says in fact it has nothing to do with your claim of racism she says that as a daughter of a man born in birmingham alabama that there is no way that she would work for an individual. Who was racist? How do you reconcile the two of
2: those? <laughs> okay. They pulled off a. So, like, what did they pull, like, a sheet off of her, off of this woman? There she is. <laughs> How do you explain proof. this?
1: So, any it, it was just. You know. Anyway, I you know, I I want to say this from this perspective. Lynn Patton, she knew what she was doing, and she is a fully functioning person. And so I don't think you know. So she she did this by on her own. Yeah. And I'm sure she she likes working for Donald Trump. I'm sure that she's just fine with her job and her position, and more power to her. But uh, this did strike some people, specifically. Well, it struck a lot of people as like. That's a little, like, it seems like a little, like a little reaching. Yeah. So there were multiple Democratic representatives that kind of made critical comments about what happened there with Meadows and and Patton being like, that seemed a little theatrical, a little bit over the top. But the one who went in the most was representative out of Michigan, Rashida Tlaib, who called out Meadows this way. This is what she said. She said, the fact that someone would use a prop, a black woman in this chamber, in this committee, is alone racist in itself. Meadows then interrupted to ask Tlaib's word be taken down, a procedure by which a member can be rebuked for a personal insult to another member if anyone knows my record this is according to meadows and he's talking to chairman elijah cummings he says if anyone knows my record as it relates it should be you mr chairman which then led to us finding out that elijah cummings and mark Mm -hmm. meadows are best friends yes they are and they were very close and honestly elijah cummings handled this whole bizarre scenario Well, Tlaib then reiterated that as her words had made clear, she was referring not to the contents of Meadow's heart, but to the decision to parade Patton in front of the committee. So this whole thing lasted like, I want to say five full minutes, maybe even longer. And Michael Cohen is just sitting there like. What the hell is going on? <laughs> exactly. Like, why are you guys like? Aren't I the the golden child? Can I not get any respect over here? This is my hearing, isn't it? So they're going back and forth bickering, and I understand uh, again with. So then Meadows is like that. It's racist for you to say that. That's racist, and then Talib is like, I think it's racist that you just bring some black woman out and be like, see, Donald Trump's not racist. The whole thing was convoluted. And a little bit juvenile in its own right, but uh, it was uh, it was quite humorous in many ways as well. Mark Meadows almost cried um, out of nowhere. He's like, I've got black
2: grandchildren,
1: and I'm like, I don't, all right, I don't yeah. know. Like, I, I really don't know how this got to
2: where we are now. My dad used but, to, like, loudly proclaim that his favorite movie was Life, the Eddie Murphy movie. Of course. And, and well, this I mean, is just like that. And it does
1: happen, of course. That's what Jordan Peele did in Get Out. That's why that movie was so powerful, was the two liberal – the or the liberal elites, uh, quote-unquote liberal elites, being like, I would have voted for Obama a third time. So many people, I mean, believed that kind of – resolve them or absolved them of all of, uh, you know, whatever racial uh, views the they green might have. Book. Yeah, I love the Green Book. I won. The <laughs> Green Book
2: won. Great. I, I'm By so way, happy for those white old uh,
1: men. Spike Lee was hilarious after he lost. And I haven't seen Black Clans, but I heard it was okay. I don't know. Um, but he's like, I, I always move, I always lose uh, to people who drive other people in cars. Yeah. Because I think he also lost to driving Miss Daisy. That's right. So uh, that, that's a curse. That's the curse of being Spike Lee. But nonetheless, so that little dispute happened, and everyone's like, okay, whatever. But I do think that the congresswoman – I understand where she's coming from because I'm like, why do you have – what is happening? <laughs> uh, it's very bizarre, and um – um so that was just some more of the
2: extracurricular,
1: I suppose, theater of the event that occurred. You just and, didn't
2: uh, need to defend Trump on the racist thing though. Like it, it uh, that's part of his appeal to his base. Like you don't you could know, have you could have just not gone there, I guess. Is, it's a lot. It's a sensitive
1: issue. It's a sensitive issue for a lot of people, specifically Republicans, and I know this because I go to Fox News on a regular basis. Some are just like you can call me racist, I don't care. Uh, because either I am or I feel like I'm not, um, whatever. But then others, it's like, it's a, like, he almost cried. Yeah. Like, immediately, this man was almost in tears. And um, so, you know, it is what it is. It was more, it was kind of a sideshow more than anything. But I'm not, Lynn Patton, she made her own decision. I'm not saying that they, so calling her a prop, I also think is a little bit demeaning. But then. That's why these things are so difficult yeah. to like. You, we're not solving this in a congressional hearing about Michael Cohen. That's all I know. All I, I think Mark Meadows didn't need to do that. Or if Lynn Patton wanted to talk, she should have spoke. You know, she could have also just gone to the cameras and been like, I got something to say. The whole thing of him talking for her. She has autonomy.
2: She should have, yeah. You know,
1: I don't know. The whole thing was just so freaking weird and confusing. I'm like, why are we here again? What happened? Anyway, so that's just a little bit of a synopsis on what happened with michael cohen and uh, he won't be back i don't think i think he's done testifying now again um, we're waiting to see if we can't get even a bigger fish in some ways alan wesselberg that would be huge well and must see uh, truly TV. A, a
2: big fish would be matthew calamari bec- of course of course the calamari the calamari part
1: i know what's going on i'm hip with the world he'll break your kneecaps that's good. Calamari's revenge. I actually don't eat calamari anymore.
2: Well, it's uh, a lot it ca- of times it's pig anus. No. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. A lot of ta- well, a lot of the cheaper calamari is actually um, fried pig anus. Really?
1: Yes. Honestly? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not. I the the reason I don't eat it is because I don't like eating calamari. But pig anus. That's that's hot dogs and yeah. hamburgers yeah. and God knows what else. Okay. Um, All right. Well, there you go. That's a bit on uh, Michael Cohen. Again, just momentarily here, we're going to interview Andrew Yang, so be sure you stick around for that. Just lastly, talk about what happened in Hanoi, Vietnam. Uh, Donald Trump is out there. My God, I did end up watching Sean Hannity, just because I have to do that sometimes. And the way that they doused praise on Donald Trump for meeting with Kim Jong-un, is just so ridiculous and hilarious. So after the first meeting, they agreed to agree to talk again. And this was the second time they were discussing denuclearization of North Korea. Now, of course, this is kind of the only thing that North Korea has is their nukes, really, or the potential of said nukes in order to uh, thwart off any perhaps invaders. But the theory here is that South Korea is actively working to unite the Koreas. South Korea has a whole bunch of reunification groups. In the government, they have reunification committees, organizations. I think they would like to see reunification. But who doesn't want to see reunification is the Chinese. Now, Xi Jinping, their economy is in shambles. Xi Jinping is getting hit by all sides right now. Uh, from all political factions. He's not doing great. Uh, Obviously, he's still technically going to be leader for life, but politically, it's getting a little bit harder for him right now in China. And the last thing they want is to have North Korea, of course, the buffer from the West, basically, in South Korea, uh, right on their doorstep. They don't want... A Korean power and then of course you also have all the technology all the minerals all the oils there's so many things that South Korea and Korea in general uh, could provide they would be a viable nation Mm -hmm. and China just does not want that so I wouldn't be surprised if in the back rooms when Kim Jong-un is talking with China and of course China and Russia those are the only two countries that give North Korea anything. They're the only countries trading with North Korea, the only countries keeping North Korea afloat at all. So whatever the Chinese want, that's what the Chinese are going to get regarding North Korea. And I just do not see reunification happening anytime soon. Certainly, as long as the Chinese are as opposed to it as they are now, there is just no way in hell. Because they don't want a strong Korea on their border because they know that's going to be much more of a Western nation because North Korea has nothing without China. And if Korea is together as a nation again, South Korea, it's basically going to be what happened uh, with the southern states after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. We're just going to have to rebuild. South Korea will, will rebuild North Korea. So they know exactly what that means. The United States is going to be allies with Korea. And not the Chinese necessarily, or not nearly as strong as allies as the Chinese are currently with the North Koreans. So, what happened in the summit was exactly. Nothing. Nothing happened whatsoever. And I have heard, as a matter of fact, it, the summit ended two days before it was supposed to end. Um, Donald Trump got up and left the meetings or whatever. And a lot of people have said that this reminds them of what Ronald Reagan did in 1986 in during the Reykjavik summit. Now, of course, it's not what Ronald Reagan did. Um, it's much more juvenile and much, much dumber than that. Um, but uh, Reagan. Reagan had met with Gorbachev and they were trying to figure out some, you know, denuclearization strategy but there was one point of contention. Reagan was committed to see his strategic defense initiative that's known as SDI to completion. Gorbachev Fearing an imbalance of power was equally determined to make sure the SDI would not be implemented, Reagan offered assurances to Gorbachev that the missile defense shield, which had been championed and funded despite widespread criticism at home, was being developed not to gain an advantage but to offer, but offer safety against accidents or outlaw nations but because Ronald Reagan refused to bend on the SDI and of course Gorbachev refused to end on the strategic defense initiative as well he walked away from the meeting but before that they had agreed on a series of different things regarding denuclearization proliferation significant significant things and Ronald Reagan chose to walk away so you hear the People on the right will be like, Donald Trump is just like Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. And there is a stark difference between the two scenarios. There is nothing, at least Ronald Reagan was an actor. Donald Trump was a reality show guy. That's just <laughs> uh, That should just show you where we're at now. Um, so basically nothing happened in Hanoi. Um, Kim Jong-un spoke with some reporters and I don't think anything got worse, but I don't think Mike Pompeo, uh, of course, secretary of state there was extremely happy. Uh, Turns out, as people have been saying for a long time, you can't just go into these meetings spitting from the hip. Usually what happens is the aides, secretary of state, whatever their counterpart version of secretary of state is, uh, you know, defense secretary. Usually these people have laid out a solid groundwork uh, that then the leaders kind of come in after already agreeing on 95, 98 percent of the basics go in maybe have some personal negotiation with whatever it might be and sign the deal that is basically already written. But that's not the way that Donald Trump does it because he is you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about like you know you ever meet people who are like, I know everything, I'm so smart. Oh like, oh that's just and it's like By definition, that person is extremely stupid because you have to be kind of smart to realize, like, I don't know, like, the vast majority of things. You know, even if you know, like, a bunch of stuff about a lot of things, we still know nothing individually. Yeah, I prefer. It's impossible. I prefer stupid people who have a lot of self-awareness. Stupid people who have self-awareness who then want to learn stuff. Yeah. Because then they're not stupid people. It's always the people who are like, I already know. I'm such a, like, a lot of these alpha, a lot of alpha Mm -hmm. males. And then you actually talk to them. I'm like, oh, no, you're a moron. That is I like, see, because you already think you
2: know everything. That is like the new archetype, like the Jordan Peterson, the Ben Shapiro. Oh, yeah. Like there is like alpha know it all is a is like a philosophy people are following now, but it's insufferable and obnoxious. And
1: because you just simply don't. And Donald Trump thinks he knows it all because he's too ignorant to understand he knows nothing or very little, and so naturally, that plays into uh, some of the reasons why the talks. Didn't go anywhere. I don't want to say they failed. They just didn't go anywhere. It was a big publicity stunt. Without a doubt benefits Kim Jong-un more. Being seen on a national stage. uh, Being embraced by world leaders talking to the press, making himself seem more open. So we have to remember Kim Jong-un is a complete and utter maniac. He's a total monster. Just some of the things he's done. We're going to talk about his uncle here in a second. How did he kill him? Well, it wasn't very fun. But this is according to a North Korean defector. He claims that he witnessed in 2013 two men closely linked to Kim Jong-un's uncle, Jang So-thek. Uh They faced a firing squad of eight Anti aircraft guns. Uh, The two men allegedly had lumps of iron stuffed into their mouth because Kim had just not trusted them. And Kim's uncle, Jang, was forced to watch the murder of his colleagues. According to the defector, blood was pouring down on his face before he fainted. The uncle was then executed himself later that year with an anti-aircraft gun, according to multiple uh, reports. Kang also claimed a top police official, also close to the North Korean leader's uncle, was killed with a flamethrower. So things are heating up in North Korea. The police official was burned alive because Kim Pershing hated him. Kang claimed another official and his wife were stripped naked and mauled to death by a pack of dogs. So that is some detail coming in. Uh, that was from February 25th of this year. It's just disgusting. E- even if three-fourths of those things are right, um, it's disgusting. But I also think there's not a lot to do in North Korea. That's what so. I was
2: going to say. I think there's a lot of that is cruel and evil. I think a big part of it is boredom.
1: Boredom in theater. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Kim Jong-un. This is this is the kind of guy he is. So you see his little goofy, fat face, and you're like, he looks like a cherub. I want to poke him and punch him and squeeze his this, little fat this, face. This is what but happens
2: when the Detective Pikachu trailer comes out and you can't watch it. You can't watch it. Well,
1: maybe they got it in North maybe. Korea first. I don't know. I don't know. But, um, but that's it. So just don't lose sight of the fact that Kim Jong-un is a criminal. The man is a total tyrant. And when Donald Trump goes over there and kisses his ass, calls him a great guy, says he's a great leader, because Donald Trump just is so just so ridiculous, we have to remember the people who are suffering in concentration camps as we speak and as you listen to this. Um, so I guess no matter how bad your day is going, it's you're doing better than people in work camps. There are a lot of concentration um, so. camps in the world so many no slavery is still alive and concentration camps are still prevalent Ab- absolutely um, so that's Kim Jong-un again don't face don't forget it rocket launchers flamethrowers, a bunch of rabbit dogs whatever it takes he'll kill people and uh, be happy to do so um, alright so I guess that's, ba- that's basically it I, I would like to say, I feel like I should say more on Hanoi but literally nothing happened yeah so I don't know what else to say the price <laughs> is wrong bitch that's Uh-oh. what happened No one really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. Who's got the time for all that traffic, parking, lugging all your mail and packages. It's a real hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending out thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24 7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And one of those 700,000 small businesses is The Last Podcast Network. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, and they help us get you your shirts, stickers, and doggy bandanas each and every week. Right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Top Hat. That's Stamps.com. Enter Top Hat. All right, folks. I'm honored to have with me right now, he is the founder of Venture for America, the VFA. He is a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. He also was selected by the Obama administration in 2012 as a champion of Change, and in 2015 as a Presidential Ambassador of Global Entrepreneurship. Andrew Yang is with me. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is, you are the only candidate running uh, within the Democratic Party that is publicly advocating for a universal basic income, and I like what you call it, a Freedom Dividend. Can you explain a little bit uh, about what that means? How would that co- take effect? I know you mentioned how the Roosevelt Institute has said that the uh, that a UBI would grow the economy by over t- $2 bucks and annually create 4.5 million jobs. Now, how would that do that? Well, the, the great thing is uh, anyone listening to this can just
3: think about what you would do with $1,000 a month, and most people would spend that money locally in their communities, on things like uh, car repairs they've been putting off and food and tutoring for their kids and the occasional night out. And that money just goes right into the Main Street economy and all of those establishments then have to hire more people. The economy is busier uh, and uh, that's how the Roosevelt Institute arrived at those projections that would create millions of jobs and grow the consumer economy by more than 10%.
1: So now, obviously, the big question that everyone is going to have, you want to give $1,000 a month. Now, is that for families or is that per person? That's
3: per adult. So if there's there a household with two adults, that household would get $24,000 a year.
1: Okay, great. And, of course, 12000 that's just beneath the poverty line. Um, but that, of course, is coming to for, for free from uh, the government. Now, of course, the question is, how does this work as far as pay? I know that you've proposed something that's called a value-added tax uh, that would then uh, sort of pay uh, for this freedom dividend. Can you explain a little bit what the value-added tax is and how it would come, or what would it mani- how would it manifest itself in reality? What would it look like? Sure, so I'd
3: like to use Amazon as the most uh, prominent example where you probably saw the headlines that Amazon reported zero in federal tax liability last year despite record profits of over $11 billion. Uh, and right. Jeff Bezos has a similar situation where he has over $100 billion in Amazon stock but there's been no taxable event. So mm. the, the issue you have to ask yourself as uh, as a society is, how are we going to get through this era of 30% of malls closing and trucks right. driving themselves? if the biggest winners, like your Amazons, and Apples, and Googles, and Facebooks, don't have to pay any taxes. Right. So what you do is you look around the world, and you find that every other advanced economy has adopted a value-added tax that is very, very difficult to game. So after I'm president, we pass the value-added tax, and then the American people get a slice of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad, every robot truck mile. A value added tax essentially um, is at a point of sale or consumption of goods, but at every part of the supply chain. So the reason why other other countries have already adopted it is that it's very very hard for the Amazons and Googles and Facebooks of the world to game their way out of.
1: So it's interesting, and I want to get to your uh, I want to talk about small businesses with you and what gets you so excited about entrepreneurship and things like that here in a second. But when it comes to the value added tax, is it similar to what is going on in Germany, for example, where they tax corporations that have robots that were previously positions held by humans as if those robots were people is, is it sort of like that where you would tax because the automation and I, you are the only one who is really nailing this automate it's not immigrants it's, it's it is automation that is what is crushing us so what does that look like in real I mean, is it a taxation on automation it really is uh and so what germany's done with robots i was
3: looking into whether we could do here but in our society it's actually very hard to determine even what is a robot mm. like if, if CBS decides to replace a cashier with an iPad, are we going to tax them on that mm. um, If you replace a thousand call center workers with artificial intelligence, um, you know like do you have some sort of tax on a per former employee basis It's very, very hard to measure and administer right so value-added tax simplifies it and makes it so that just for, value-changing hands, which it would in each of these examples, uh, then the American people get a
1: slice. Interesting. And What do you say to some of the critics who would say something, you know, I love your conversation about socialism and capitalism, where we're at right now, marrying the two, and we can talk about that uh, here in a second, marrying the two and getting the best out of both political philosophies. How do you square this with someone that would say it's impossible? Uh, for the U.S. government to do that, obviously, with the largest economy in the world, $19 trillion bucks. How, what would you give them a quick elevator pitch, if you will? Um, because obviously when you're on the road and you're shaking hands and uh, and do it, t- talking to these folks, that's going to be a common question.
3: Oh, yeah. And I talk about it all the time, that we are the richest and most advanced economy in the history of the world. As you say, our economy is now more than $19 trillion, up $5 trillion in the last 12 years alone. Mm. We can easily afford a dividend of a thousand dollars a month for every American adult, particularly because so much of that money is going to get spent right here in our Main Street economies around the country. The great thing about it uh, in terms of its real life impact, it makes children and families healthier and stronger. It empowers millions of American women who right now are in exploitative or abusive jobs or relationships to be able to improve their situations and walk away. It helps people in the LGBTQ community because people of that uh, community are more likely to be fired from jobs and kicked out of the house, and so it gives them the ability to become more resilient and able to move to better situations. It helps communities of color who have historically lower access to education, resources, and opportunities uh, to be able to improve their situations as well. So it addresses a lot of the needs that we already know we have in our society. Uh, and when people say, well, we can't afford that. One thing I say is look, we printed $4 trillion for the banks, uh, during the bailout and there was no inflation as a result of that. And in this case, the money would go much more effectively and efficiently into the economy. Everyone knows that right now, 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, 57% can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. So we know that if we put this money into Americans hands. It's going to go right back into the economy.
1: And speak a little bit because what's so unique about you, and I want to talk about uh, Venture for America here in a second, but you're a small business owner yourself or a business owner. I don't even know how small it is, Um, but you have paid paychecks. You have signed, you know, you have signed budgets. You understand how to make sure um, everything is on the up and up. Uh, how has that business experience um, been able to translate itself in this political realm?
3: Well, you know, I, I was a small business owner for years and I love small businesses. I think small businesses are the lifeblood of the economy in many communities. Yeah. And if they can create jobs for people that people enjoy, it's really uh, the best path forward. Um, and so. Uh, a lot of American voters really respond very positively to that because when I meet with small business owners in Ohio or Iowa or New Hampshire, I naturally speak their language. Right. And one of one of the the issues with some of the policies that are being put forward, like I agree 100% with the spirit of a $15 an hour minimum wage. Sure. Um, but the the reality for many small businesses is that they're paying less than that. Let's call it nine or ten dollars an hour, and that change actually would be very significant in terms of their bottom line and so they'd cut back shifts right. um, or they, they might uh, you know they, they might try and make do with fewer people. It's much better to pass a universal basic income of $1,000 a month and just get money directly into people's hands yep. and then the small business owner benefits because their customers have more money instead of trying to get money to people through the the minimum wage itself. Though again, I'm for the spirit of a higher minimum wage, no one should be working full time in this country. Uh, and be poor. Uh, But some of our policies kind of imagine that small businesses have the wherewithal to do things that some of them may not have.
1: Well, uh, Mr. Yang, thank you so much for bringing that up because that was actually going to be my next question. Would this offset or make it not needed to do a $15 minimum wage because, you know, obviously I completely agree with you with the spirit. I think workers need more money. They need more rights. Amazon is criminal the way that they treat their employees. Mom and pop businesses, you have to understand, and I'm sure you do, when you run a muffin joint, all of a sudden, fifteen dollars minimum wage. Well, before it was seven fifty, but now the porter has to get fifteen dollars minimum wage. If you if you run a bar, and now the the chef, if you have a restaurant, is going to be like, I'm not making the same as the porter. So now they want twenty five, and it goes up exponentially. So it really isn't just you know a fifteen dollars minimum wage. And I think one of the ironies is that allows for Amazon, that allows for Walmart, that allows for these huge corporations who can. Afford, well afford $15 minimum wages to just move in and destroy everything.
3: Yeah, and and so it's much more efficient just to put money directly into the hands of workers uh, through something like a citizen's dividend. And the great thing, too, is that that also encompasses people who are doing work that right now is not recognized by our society as work. Right. And the example I use is my wife who's at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic. It's not like a higher minimum wage helps her right. um, because – her work right now is not considered by society as an actual job. Mm -hmm. um, Even though I would argue that the work she's doing is as important or more important than um, the work that I was doing as a corporate lawyer, for example, that was very remunerative. I was a lawyer for five unhappy months. So please don't look (laughs) at me and be like, I didn't know that dude was a lawyer. It was five months in like the late nineties. But, but, but I was just using that as an example. It's that the market is a very imperfect determinant of the value of our work. uh, And it could be, that there are many things that we want to reward that a minimum wage would not touch.
1: Man, I'll tell you, as someone who just wants to be a stay at home dog dad and just kind of work on my little writings and things like that, I love this idea. Um, and it's, so it's not just for, uh, you know, it's, it's for any stay at home jobs are jobs. You know, it's not, uh, that's not just a common cliche. So- and and, and to, your, to your point, I just want to say this too this would be an
3: explosion of arts, creativity, yeah. <laughs> Journalism, caregiving, coaching, nurturing, like all of the core human activities that we want to do would flourish in a country where we had this dividend. And that's what I'm going to make happen as president in 2021.
1: Well, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. We talk about new economies, obviously the old argument or the old um, I guess sort of analogy is in the 19 in 1900, it was mostly farm work. It was mostly an agriculture based society. Now it's 3% is, is farm work. And you would just ask those people in 1900 be like, so there's only 3% of these jobs left. What are you going to do? They wouldn't understand that we need coders. We need you know, a whole series of other professions. That's simply an Uber driver that simply did not exist. Um, so Etsy, uh, these small businesses that people can create from their home, I do agree with you. I think that is the future for people to uh, to create happiness in their lives and steady income. Yeah, and if you look at Etsy as an
3: example, um, and I use it in my book, fewer than 15% of businesses on Etsy produce anywhere near like a living wage, and virtually none of them um, have uh, insurance benefits. Right. Um, and, and so Etsy can be our future if – we're not presenting these uh, visions that it's going to be the equivalent of a full-time income, and that's why what something like having a universal basic income of twelve thousand dollars a year then makes it much more feasible because then if you have two adults in the house twenty four thousand dollars, then your Etsy business doesn't need to bring in uh, you know fifty thousand dollars to be able to to make it viable. You can right. produce things you love and if it produces $25,000 uh, uh, worth of revenue in a given year, you can still live a very happy, productive life. Right. Um, and, and so that that's the kind of thing that we should be making more possible for people without uh, pretending that folks are going to be able to produce a full income yeah. um right now uh you know from from the from their home in many many situations.
1: Well, let's stick with jobs and then I want to ask a little bit about healthcare uh because that's going to be uh, extremely well expressed here in 2019. So, Venture for America, what is VFA? What inspired you to get involved with this or create this? And uh, what's the ultimate mission? So it was 2011,
3: and the financial crisis had just transpired, and I was very despondent about the direction of the country, and one of the problems I saw was that many smart, ambitious, enterprising young people were heading to Wall Street and big consulting firms in Silicon Valley, Right. and so I thought, well, what would be a better use of their talents and energy? And so I created Venture for America to help train entrepreneurs in places like Detroit, Cleveland, nice. New Orleans, Birmingham, Baltimore, with the idea, and, and you know, in a way, it was really a response to the financial crisis, but in many ways, it sort of presaged the rise of Donald Trump. Um, I spent the last six years working in Michigan, Ohio, Missouri, Alabama, uh, and we helped create several thousand jobs in those cities. Right. That's why I was uh, uh, appointed this ambassador of entrepreneurship by the Obama administration. Um, and so my goal was to try and help balance the uh, brain drain out of many regions and mm-hmm. reverse it, and hopefully channel more uh, energy and resources to places that could
1: use a boost. Absolutely, I think that is complete. That is that's wonderful. That's the Lord's work because the, we we travel all around this country uh, and the world, traveling around for our live shows, and we just see certain places that have just been destroyed you know, decimated by the economic situation now. And we talk about Wall Street might be going up, up, and up, and all the numbers are coming in. This economy is great. Well, there's a lot of folks who aren't seeing it. And I think those people are looking for someone to speak up for them a little bit. And oftentimes, as we mentioned earlier, as I mentioned earlier, immigrants get a scapegoat. But can you talk a little bit about the correlation in maybe areas that supported Donald Trump And the rise of technology. Is there a direct correlation between unemployment or less employment and the rise of automation?
3: Yeah, there's a direct relationship where if you look at the voting district data, there's a straight line up between the adoption of industrial robots in in a region and the movement towards Donald Trump. Mm. And again, if you look at where we decimated these manufacturing jobs. It was in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, the entire set of swing states that Trump needed to win. Um, And now, unfortunately, we're gonna do the same thing to retail jobs, call center jobs, truck driving jobs, fast food jobs, and on and on. Um, So I had the same experience you did, where when I went to other parts of the country, I was blown away by the disparities between Missouri and Manhattan, or uh, San Francisco, Um, and Ohio, where when you go between those two places and you've had this experience, it sounds like you feel like you're traversing dimensions and decades and not just a couple of time zones. Uh, And it gets even more extreme when you leave those metropolitan areas and go to rural communities on the outskirts. So when, when people think about why Donald Trump's our president, there is rampant suffering and financial insecurity in this country many people feel left behind and you can see it in the darkest of stats where suicides are at a record high, Mm. drug overdoses eight an hour um, to the point where it's actually depressing our our life expectancy has declined for the last three years as a country. Uh, The first time that's happened in a hundred years and a hundred years ago it was the Spanish flu of 1918. We are actually in Spanish flu territory.
1: And is that mostly suicide? Is that the reason that we're seeing life uh, expectancy go down? Is it mostly self-harm and suicide? It is mostly deaths of
3: despair, which are drug overdoses and suicides. Both of those have overtaken vehicle deaths for the first time in American history as causes of death. So we are disintegrating by the numbers. We are falling apart. And anyone who wants to see why Donald Trump became president... All you have to do is go to some of these communities uh, and you will see
1: very, very clearly. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned because I watched a lot of your YouTube interviews. and um, So you mentioned Americans and kind of to that point when we travel around and you just say, oh, my, I would love to pick everyone up and be like, you know, let's get working again. But there are no jobs. This mindset of scarcity, of scarcity. You mentioned a mindset of scarcity uh, within the American people. We don't have enough, there isn't enough money to go around, all these things. But as you also mentioned, we got a $19 trillion economy, biggest economy in the world. Can you explain a little bit what you mean when you say mindset of scarcity?
3: Yeah, so we've all experienced a mindset of scarcity in our own ways. If you can't pay your bills, you start making all of these time-money trade-offs where you think, oh, if I pay this, I can't pay that. And maybe if I take extra time to do this, it'll be cheaper. It'll save me this much. And when you start getting into that mindset, you actually have less bandwidth to be able to make rational decisions. Studies have shown that being in this mindset will decrease your functional intelligence by 13 points or one standard deviation. Wow. And so if you feel like America is getting less rational, less reasonable uh, more subject to bad ideas, and even more xenophobic and racist, right. it's because we've introduced pervasive financial insecurity into our country where, again, 57% campaign, unexpected $500 bill, and 78% are living paycheck to paycheck. Wow. And so so, so that is the real challenge. The reason I'm so passionate about this freedom dividend or universal basic income of $1,000 a month is that we need to get the boot off of people's throats. Yeah. Uh, we need to let people think clearly And then after they think clearly, then we'll be able to make progress on the big challenges like climate change and other 21st century challenges. Um, But the first big move we have to make is we have to evolve in our notions of human value and what work looks like That it's not just show up in nine to five. We have to evolve past this labor subsistence model where I trade my time for a certain amount of money I need to survive. And then we do that over and over again, because increasingly... You know, if the trucks start driving themselves, like what are three and a half million uh, former truckers really going to do?
1: Right. Exactly.
3: Being a retail worker is the most common job in this country. And 30 percent of malls are going to close in the next five years. So we need to grow up. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's really the the. Central mission of my campaign is to try and help us confront the real challenges of today
1: Yeah, my father was a truck driver and uh, so that that really hits home I mean and that's that's a job that's extremely difficult to do and they make 70k a year if it's a really good company Yeah, no they can they Uh, do quite
3: well and so so the delta the drop-off is going to be very high but I do want to, to talk about the opposite of a mindset of scarcity, and that's a mindset of abundance, mm. which is what many entrepreneurs have. It's when you think if you make an investment, it's going to pay off, uh, that you can build something and it'll just get better over time. Right. And, and we are losing that mindset. And that's what we need to instill in more Americans and communities. And the great thing is if we accomplish that, then we'll give rise to a whole new level of entrepreneurship and creativity. And innovation and artistic pursuits, right? Uh, but but we need to come together as a country and say this is the direction we want to go, uh, and that's why I'm I'm running for president to make that uh, case to the American people.
1: Well, and I'm really grateful that you are running for president, and hopefully, you know, when you are. On center stage for these debates, I think what you're saying is going to resonate with a lot of people and you're going to surprise a lot of people. One of the quotes that you referenced, and I forget who you quoted in this reference, but I thought it was really interesting um, regarding capitalism. Because I want to just ask you just briefly about how we get socialism and capitalism to find each other on Tinder, go on a date and decide to get married. Um, Yes. You say – we never, um, the thing about capitalism is we never knew capitalism was going to get eaten by its sun technology. What does that really mean and how can socialism, like what sectors of our economy would socialism be good for and then what sectors is just capitalism is the only way to go?
3: Yeah, so that quote is from a guy named Eric Weinstein um, and what he's talking about is that many of the economic relationships we take for granted with capitalism are now breaking down. Mm. So here's a set of relationships we used to take for granted. If I build a highly successful, profitable company, I'm going to need to hire lots of people. Right. And then when I hire lots of people, I'm going to need to pay them and treat them moderately well and make it so that they can afford to buy my goods. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to care about the communities that we live and work in. Right. Today, I can create a highly profitable company that does not employ lots of people If it does employ people, I can make them all gig workers and contractors, and I don't care if they can afford my goods because I'm selling around the world to to people that may or may not be in my own backyard. So all of these assumptions we make about relationships are dying before our eyes. And so what we need to do is we need to take the best of both worlds uh, in terms of capitalism and socialism. So people regard me as championing Medicare for all, single-payer health care, which I do, and people associate that with being a democratic socialist. I'm not interested in labels, but it's completely obvious to me that we need to have a single payer public option in this country to both bring down costs and expand access in healthcare. So that's something that people would associate with socialists. In terms of capitalism, uh, we need to try and harness the power of the markets to actually improve how we are doing. Our mental health, our physical health, our environmental health, the levels of engagement we have with work. The problem is right now we're chasing GDP and capital efficiency and stock market prices when none of those things have any relationship to how 80% of Americans are doing. Right. And so what we do is we harness capitalism, but we say, look, the purpose is not raise GDP. The purpose is to raise our quality adjusted life expectancy. The purpose is to raise childhood success rates. The purpose is to improve our mental health and bring down our overdose rate. And then, if right. you, and then if you use those as your measurements, then you can get entrepreneurs and organizations and companies innovating in ways that actually help us instead of, frankly, ways that marginalize us right. and make us less relevant. Because the smartest humans, the smartest radiologists, cannot out diagnose an artificial intelligence that can see shades of gray on a film that the human eye cannot. And can reference millions of data points when a doctor can only reference thousands. Right. So so it's no longer about some kind of uh, archaic notion of meritocracy anymore. Right. Like, uh, you know, we, we have to try to evolve our very definitions of what progress looks like. Yeah. And that sounds very difficult. It sounds very futuristic. But it's actually pretty easy. We made up GDP almost 100 years ago during the Great Depression. And so when I'm president in 2021, I'm just going to go down the street to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics and say, hey, guys, GDP has not been updated in 100 years. So now we're going to update it and we're going to include childhood success rates and environmental standards and uh, mental health. And then we're going to build an American scorecard. And then I'm going to present on those uh, levels and measurements every year at the State of the Union. And we are going to drive resources to try and improve them. We're going to reward companies. That are able to demonstrate that they're actually helping communities, because I, I know CEOs, and even the best of them feel like their hands are tied because they have to optimize for profitability every quarter. Right. Uh, and so, if you say, "Look, you can optimize for more things now," like if you do something great in the community and we can tell that it's real, then we can give you a giant uh, tax break for that, or a giant, um, you know, like way to Exclusive. decrease your.
1: Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So when it comes to Medicare for all, just lastly, um, how do you what's the best way to implement that, do you think? Because I know there's a couple of different ideas as far as how would you do it? Yeah, so um, I think that you
3: need to have a public option um, that negotiates lower rates and the, the simplest way to do that is to lower the eligibility age for Medicare um, over time. You have a transition where more and more people are part of the pool. And if you are representing the American people, you kind of need younger, healthier workers because right. then it brings down the um, the rates very, very fast. I would not outlaw private insurance, but the the fact is, most private insurers would disappear, except for a handful of uh, concierge type, gold plated insurers that uh, have wealthy corporate clients. But having that private insurance exist um one it's america and you know that stuff's going to exist in my opinion (laughs) of course (laughs) but 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 there's actually a public benefit because if you have uh, parallel resources working on various innovations over time the public's going to benefit from that so to me the the move is to lower the eligibility age over time and have a robust public option uh don't make private insurance illegal uh, but most of it would disappear over time
1: Right. Andrew Yang, a Democratic candidate for president. Um, Really awesome speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I would assume you have a very busy schedule right now because, you know, you're getting your name out there. And thank you so much for coming on uh, this show and talking to our audience.
3: Such a pleasure. And if anyone wants to find out more, go to Yang2020.com. I've got 75 different um, policy proposals. I'm not just the universal basic income guy. And uh, if you'd like to see me on this debate stage uh, in June, if you go to our website and make even a dollar donation, you can be part of us reaching the threshold we need. But we're going to get there. Um, We're getting thousands of donations a day, which I'm very, very grateful for. So we should
1: break through the threshold um uh by the end of march it looks like no and i looked at your website and i was so happy it had policies because so many of them that i've looked at just have the donate button with nothing else and i'm like who am i giving to like what is happening um so thank you for being so transparent with your ideas and not being afraid of of sharing them with everyone and backing them up with um with actual information that that uh, makes them seem completely reasonable and rational because Uh, You know, it's an uphill battle to find rationality in this country right now. So uh, thank you so much. No problem. Andrew Yang. Thank you, my man. I'll see you soon. No doubt. Great to be here. Thank you. All right. There it was. The interview with Andrew Yang. Wonderful stuff. Go to his website, yang2020.com. Give a donation. He is almost there and he will be on the debate stage in June and July. So uh, that is very uh, cool stuff. And I love it very much. So there it is. Andrew Yang. Uh check him out if you haven't already. Yang2020.com. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Abraham Lincoln's Top Hat. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. We will talk to you soon. Rate and review on iTunes. Do I say is that what people say? I think people say rate and review on iTunes. Honestly, that would be really kick ass if you did it. Um, because then our number I mean, we're doing great on iTunes. But it's fun to beat the the big ones. It's fun to beat the so-called big names. They they know we're coming. We are the big name around in the world. That's what I say. All right, everyone. I love you so much. I will talk to you soon. Hail yourselves. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.